Turn with me, if you will, to the Gospel of Mark. And as we find ourselves in the Gospel of Mark, we're going to jump ahead to the end of the chapter, right? See how this ends. Duty calls in the light of the resurrection. I recently had a conversation um, with a, an ex-military man, and he stated that going into the military as a young man really helped him become more of a mature individual. Uh, he said he lacked a lot of discipline and needed instruction in his younger years. And he said that one of the things that stuck with him the most that um, coming out of it was his personal sense of duty. He realized that um, he's not only responsible for himself and his family, but other people outside that circle. And so I thought about those comments during this past week. And as I read through this passage here, the end of chapter 15 and part of chapter 16 in Mark's Gospel, I was thinking along those lines of our duty. Now that Christ is indeed risen from the dead, hallelujah, it's important that we be reminded of our responsibility as his children, as his servants. You know, it's appropriate for the convert to Christ, since Jesus died and rose again from the grave, it's appropriate that we understand that we have a duty. And there is within our hearts. We have this sense of duty. Seeing that Jesus died for us, we owe it all to him. And I think it's important that it is actually this resurrection from the dead of Christ that completes his earthly ministry. If Jesus Christ does not raise from the dead, then Christianity is no different than any other religion, and it's useless. It is the linchpin of Christianity. Now, for those of you who don't really understand the function of a linchpin, I'll explain just a little bit. Picture an axle with a wheel on the outside of that axle. The linchpin is the pin that goes perpendicular to the axle that causes the wheel to stay in place. If you lose the linchpin, you're in danger of losing the wheel and impending disaster. And this is what would have been the case with Christ. Had he not risen from the dead, it would have been disaster. You and I would not be sitting in this room, and neither would this world exist. I'm pretty sure of that. It comes down to the simple fact. If Jesus Christ indeed rose from the dead, then we are obligated to serve him. And there is salvation in none other, because it makes everything that Jesus said true. Either he was God incarnate, he came in the flesh, or he was not. And he claimed to be the Messiah. He complained, confessed, and admitted that he was God throughout the scriptures. It's a very subtle way in which he said it, but nonetheless he made those claims. You see, his raising from the dead changes everything. It validates. I love this statement, and I use it often when I witness to people 
those that are looking to the world and to other religions or other forms of philosophy as their way to help them cope. But when Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, no one comes to the Father by, but by me. That's exclusive. So, and that's not exactly politically correct in our day and age. But I'd rather stick with what Jesus had to say than what the world is telling us. And if Jesus said he's the only way, he is the truth, and he's the life, and there's no way to get to the Father, then that's the truth, because his resurrection proves what he, and validates what he said and proclaimed. And what, so if you follow the logic through, that makes all other religions, and this is going to go over real well, I can tell, a fault, that are, they're false, and they're a lie. Because within Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, and even rabbinic Judaism, which rejects Christ, it's incomplete in and of itself, they are not systems by which you can be made right with God. None of those systems address the major problem of mankind, and that is the need for forgiveness. The thing that people in heaven all have in common, and will have in common, is that we're all forgiven. We're all there by the grace of God and the mercy of God because Christ's atoning death covers us. So I've used that quite often. How does your system of belief, your philosophy, or your religion deal with the issue of forgiveness? And most of the time, people are rather stumped. But if you dilute it, dissolve, and distill it down to its finest thing, those systems of, for their, in their system, in order to have salvation, eternal security, there's, it's a matter of works. The seeker of God must do something to curry God's favor. And that's the whole difference with Christianity. Religion is man's attempt to reach God. Christianity is God's attempt, and, and successful, I would say, in doing so, to reach sinful man. He, in his mercy and grace, provided what was necessary. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ validates that. So, when people tell you or say to you, well, you're kind of exclusive in your religion, just tell them that wasn't your idea. <laughs> it was his you know, the reason why it's like that is, could you imagine if we, we, we got to heaven on the basis of works? I don't think you'd want to be in heaven to hear all the billions and billions of people standing around chatting, bragging about how, what they did to get into the, you know, heaven. But in reality, what will we all be saying? It's what he did. We'll be part of that group that cast their crowns before the throne. We're not worthy, as Jacob said, of the least of your tender mercies. So this other statement also is, should be defining when we're talking about salvation and eternal destiny. In Matthew 7.13, Jesus said, Enter in by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many that go in by it. 
because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way that leads to life. And there are few who find it. So we cannot save ourselves through good works. We must go through the person of Jesus Christ to inherit eternal life. (laughs) The wonderful gift that God has given to you and to me is the gift of righteousness. On the cross, which we covered Friday night in our reflections of Passover and the fulfillment of them in the New Testament, all the requirements of the law were fulfilled in the person of Christ. So in reality, what happened on the cross is that Jesus Christ became what I am, a filthy, rotten, wicked sinner, deserving of eternal punishment and separation from God. That's why Jesus cried out on the cross, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is because for that brief moment in eternity, for the first time in all of eternity, the second person of the Trinity was separated from the Father, that he might become the sacrifice for sin, that he might make the payment, the eternal payment that was due the sin committed by mankind. Wow. In doing so, he is now free to justify the guilty through faith. Jesus became what I am that I might become what he is. The righteousness of God. It is a gift not to be earned and can never be earned. So what was going on in the unseen realm? Sometimes we just sort of look at the physical of all, all the things that went on and you know we've got the movies sort of stuck in our head of you know the day Christ died and all and the, the passion week and everything that went on and his last walk up the Via de Rosa to the cross and Golgotha and all and it's just it's, it, it, it's etched in our minds the physical sufferings but the spiritual sufferings are sort of behind the scenes and what really happened on that day is the fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus died. He was bruised. Genesis 3.15 The seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head, but in doing so, it would bruise his heel. Jesus was bruised. He suffered death, but he crushed. Hallelujah. I love to say that. He crushed Satan's authority. He no longer has dominion over death. Hallelujah. He purchased the title deed to the earth. He snatched the keys of death and hell out of the enemy's hand. Satan is a defeated foe. Hallelujah. Praise God. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So don't tout this other, all roads lead to God, you know. All roads do lead to God, the eternal Yahweh, no doubt. But not all roads taken have the same result, I can guarantee that. There's only one way, as Jesus said, and he is the way. It is in the presence of God, as we've experienced already this morning, that we find the blessings of God. It is in the worship of God that we are transformed, that we are delivered from our 
flesh, our carnal nature, our fallen nature, we're able to, as it were, through the power of the Holy Spirit, mortify those things, put them to death, the things that we know are displeasing to God, the things that leave an issue with our conscience. We're able to, over time, and worship and prayer and bringing it to God, overcome. That's the wonderful work of the Spirit within our lives. But we also, uh, through this same power, uh, receive a call to duty. We have a sense of duty, that there's something that God would have us to do. And this is an important thing. I, I think every born-again believer has this uh, experience within. What is it, Lord, that you would have me to do? I mean, it, you think about Paul. I mean, here's a guy that's murdering Christians. And on his way to Damascus, and he's knocked off his high horse, you know. And the Lord speaks to him. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. The fir- one of the first things out of his mouth after being humbled was, Lord... What would you have me to do? And that is really the cry of a broken man before God. What is it, Lord, that you would have me to do? So I purposely set this up, looking at this text, some sort of in there, the, the duty that belongs to the Christian. Now, I'm not reading it into it. It just sort of popped out to me. I mean, I can see it. It's there. So first of all, we're going to look at duty poised. And then we're going to look at, at, at do, the opportunity uh, or d- the duties that were actually executed um, by these first disciples. And then uh, we'll look at when duty is delayed. And then finally, we'll close uh, with uh, the duty performed for the glory of God. So, as we look, let's read, pick it up here in verse 42 of chapter 15. Now, when evening had come, because it was preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And Pilate marveled that he was already dead. And summoning the centurion, he asked him if he had been dead for some time. So when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Then he brought fine linen, took him down, wrapped him in linen, and laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of the rock, and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph observed where he was laid. So this idea of duty is, is, is important for you and I to understand. Essentially, as I've taught many of you, and for those of you who are visiting, it's just something that uh, we believe here with all our hearts, is that God has a plan and a purpose for everyone that's created. There's no exception. Nobody can say, well, I didn't really know what you wanted me to do. I didn't really have a, a, a purpose like everybody else. Nobody can say that to the Lord because he created us all with something in mind. Before the foundation of the world was ever laid, God thought about you. Yeah, well, you might think, well, I'm not very significant. Well, who is? We're all on the same level in that regard. We're all insignificant, but not to God. Maybe to each other, but not to God. We all have a, a mission. And I, uh, I believe you have to understand that because that's the starting point as you begin to walk with the Lord. After you're converted, Lord, what would you have me to do? That is, that is the starting point. 
And uh, you don't need to travel over land and sea, scale steep mountains to find out the will of God. It is written on our hearts. He puts it within. It's sort of in our DNA when we're born again. It's our job to ask the Lord and to seek Him and to find it out along our journey in our life. And I've found, fortunately, not perfectly, but fortunately, that most of the time, God's plans and purposes are right in front of my face. And it's so easy to look beyond what's right there and look somewhere else. Because what I'm looking at usually isn't very glorious. You know, I have visions of grandeur or something special that God would have me to do when all he's asking me to do is the simple thing, that which is right in front of me, something that I'm capable of, of doing with his help. So we do the first things that are presented to us. If we're faithful with what is presented to us, then greater things will be added to us. As he said in a place in the gospel, if you cannot be faithful with the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to you the true mammon? If we are not faithful to do the small things, why should we expect God to grant us greater things? So those are the simple things in regards to service that we should keep in mind. But the basis of this is actually found in Jeremiah 1. I've repeated this countless times, and I don't mind repeating it again because we have remarkable forgetters. And some of us fail to believe it, so we have to hear it over and over again. But Jeremiah 1 uh, is very powerful. And probably some of you can quote this as well. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. He's a young man at this point in time. And he said, the Lord said to him, Before I formed you, this is verse 4, In the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. And I ordained you a prophet to the nations. All but one of those things apply to all of us. First of all, as I said before, God knew you. He knew knew everything about you and his plan and his purpose and where you would fit in time. We didn't choose when we were born. We're not going to choose when we die. We We didn't have control of any of that. And so, but God does, and He knows, and He knew before He laid the foundation of the world all about you. The very hairs on your head are all numbered. And some of you, it's less than others, but that's beside the point. <laughs> but I formed you. Now, as I said before, you may not like what He formed when you look in the mirror, but get over it. We place way too much emphasis on the physical, and it's okay. Just relax. It's temporary. (laughs) You're going to get a new body on the other side. Aren't you happy? Amen to that. Yes. (laughs) I knew you. I formed you. I sanctified you. Well, I don't feel worthy. You aren't. I'm not. But it is the power of the blood of Christ that that regenerates us. We've been born again of the Holy Spirit. The word sanctified, you know, get a little carried away. Holy. That's another way, way it's translated from the original. What does it mean? It just means set apart. God has taken you out of the world and set you apart because he knew you and he formed you and he's now setting you apart specifically for something to do. And this is something that you have to find out alone. This is where you walk with God alone. What is it, Father? What is it? What is my duty here? And then it says, I ordained you a prophet. That's what... It, After being sanctified, here's what I've ordained for you. Now, 
for Jeremiah, it was a prophet to the nations. That probably doesn't apply to very many people. Uh, but it's, it, it's a blank for you. And I ordained you a blank. What is it that God has ordained you to? You have to find out. You have to discover it. You have to ask him upon it. And therein lies what it's all about. This is what Christianity is all about. A deep, personal relationship with Jesus Christ. With the Father of lights. That's what it's about. Notice how these men responded uh, to the need. They were ready to take care of the body of the Lord Jesus. We are to respect the dead. There's something really sacred. Apart from animals, the body of a human being is sacred. That person was and is created in the image of God. The treatment that Jesus received from the hands of these sinful men was an incredible dishonor of immeasurable wickedness. What they did to him. I mean, it's, it's heartbreaking when you think about it. How would you like your son to be treated that way. You just wouldn't. And yet we see the love and the loyalties of these disciples as an example of kindness and sympathy that we should show towards those who have gone on before us. And what's really wonderful about this and an example to us is that they had the ability to meet the need. They gave what they possessed to fulfill their duty to the Lord. And God asks us no less. You don't have to give what you don't have. You just give of yourself and what He has given you. And rarely is He asking you to give everything you have. Usually it's just a little bit, right? They were in positions of authority and they had the means to do it and they felt compelled and they went and they asked for the authority to take care of the body. They did what was possible. And that's really what we're to do. They had already hewn the tomb out for personal use, but hey, what's the big deal? Let's let the Lord use it. And happily for him, it was just a temporary use, right? That's why we have that motto on the wall there. I do what I can with what I have where God has placed me. That is what God is asking of you. When it comes to your duty, are you doing what you can? You have to answer that question personally before God. Are you using what you have? Not what you have not, but what you have. And truly, is this where God has placed you? And if that's the case... Get busy, <laughs> wherever that is. The women availed themselves. Notice there it says that Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, observed where he was laid. Now I um, kind of get some of this from uh, the following verses here that we'll pick up here in chapter 16, verse 1. Now when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Sal uh, Salome, Salome, however you desire to pronounce it, bought spices that they might have, might come and anoint him. Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen, 
And when they said among themselves, Who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee, and there you will see him, as he said to you. And so they went out quickly, fled from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Notice there, the women are in the background. Seems That seems to be the cultural thing around the world. It is you ladies uh, in a, are in a subordinate position and take the back seat, but you're always paying attention to the details. I've noticed that. Somebody has to, because the guys don't, right? <laughs> but they followed after. And they observed the tomb. They were paying attention. That's what it takes when you're looking at the details. Pay attention. They observed the body of the Lord Jesus, as we've read. And so they returned before the Sabbath began, quickly. Had a quick list of what needed to be done. They purchased the necessary things, no doubt. Prepared the spices, as we've read here. And then they rested. And this is, a, this is kind of a point out of there that I think it's important. They rested because of the Sabbath. I think it's important that as we serve the Lord, we learn to rest. God isn't in some big hurry. Can you imagine Jesus actually rushing? Oh, man, I forgot my appointment. <gasps> you just, it just doesn't fit with the person of Christ, does it? When you are walking with the Lord and doing uh, His will, uh, there's no striving, there's no uh, uptightness. There's a time of rest and thought. Because when you're resting, you can... Kind of think things through. No doubt that's what the ladies were doing. Well, uh, as soon as the Sabbath's over, we'll get up early in the morning and we'll go finish uh, the job. And notice it says there that they um, saw where they laid the bo- he laid the body. They were they saw the condition that um, Nicodemus and Joseph left it in. Now you say, well, where's Nicodemus? Well, then look up John nineteen. Verse 39, he was, those two guys worked together, Joseph and Nicodemus. And so the, I think there's a, uh, a couple th- different reasons uh, they went. I mean, why did the women go to the tomb? What was in their minds and their hearts? Like, we just got to go there. You know, I don't really know what was th- their motive or why. But I like to think about stuff like that. Well, you know, why didn't the disciples want to go to the, you know, the tomb? It's just something to think about. One of the possible reasons, and I'm not saying this is the gospel per se, um, maybe they didn't like the job that Joseph and <laughs> Nicodemus did. Man, those guys are sloppy. You know, guys are not, like I said, sometimes we just don't always clean up the best and do the best. And I'm not trying to demean those two fellows, but I would rather believe that the, it was because of the time constraints. They sort of had to rush and do the best they could with what they had in the time frame that they had. And the women noticed that there were certain things that were left out because they were quite 
involved. There's a lot of details to preparing a body uh, for burial. And they, uh, in their hearts, no doubt, like we've got to give the Lord the best. We can't skimp on this. And we know the guys did the best they could, but there's still some stuff that needs to be done. And so I think, to me, I think that was a, a very real possibility. They wanted to do Jesus, do right by Jesus, you know. I think that's the way we should look at our responsibilities, our duties. Are we doing the very best we can? Are we giving the Lord the best? Well, you know, it's, it's, it's good enough. You know, <laughs> there's a term that's loosely used, in the, and it's probably used in your uh, area of work as well as my own but in construction it's well that's good enough for government work and it's just you know it's a slam on the government because they sort of aren't really good at the details sometimes well this isn't Jesus isn't good enough for the government right he's a real person you know because the government's sort of impersonal we have to take our work for the Lord very personal we're doing it as unto him you know it's kind of like falls along the same lines as you don't give the Lord a crippled animal to, as a sacrifice. You know, well, you know, we don't want that one because it's lame in its feet. Let's just give that to the Lord. Would you, you know, and, he, and, and the Lord sort of gets on Israel about this. Would you, you know, later in the Minor Prophets, would your governor be happy with that? Uh, no. <laughs> so you get the idea. God deserves the best. And these women had that. As well as the fellows, I'm sure. Verses 1 through 8, we see here this duty being executed uh, by the women. It says, um, who will roll away the stone for us? The women obviously uh, being uh, physically weaker than men. I mean, that's generally the, the rule. Except for the ones that work out these days. Well, <laughs> That was steroids. It's amazing <laughs> what can happen. But generally speaking, you know, they're not going to be able to roll this stone out of the way. And if you realize the stone is not this big round thing in the sense that it's a, a spherical, it's uh, more like a coin shape, but very, very large. And there's a little uh, trench carved out of the stone that they would roll it back and forth. That's what so when they're talking about rolling, they're literally rolling it from one side to the other. Uh, to allow access in. So even that stone, which is probably about 12, 14 inches thick by 6 feet tall at least, maybe a little taller, would have been quite heavy. So no way uh, the ladies are going to be able to move that. We don't have the ability. Who's going to take care of this? And if we can let those kind of obstacles get in our way. We can say, well, we don't have the ability to do that. They did not let that stop them from going, well, let's just sleep in. The stone's in the way. Forget it. No, they just went about it. And when they got there, what did they find out? The problem was already taken care of for them. And so those little fears, those little excuses that we might, you know, that might come up in our minds, don't let that bother you. Your inability. In fact, this is really a great testimony 
in Revelation chapter 3 at the church of Philadelphia. It says, you you are of little strength. I don't know about you, that's how I feel an awful lot. Things that I face, I have little strength, Lord strengthen me. And that, but he also says, see, look, perceive and understand. I have set before you an open door. So even though in your duty, you may feel like you are not capable, you don't have the ability, but look, perceive and understand. God has placed before you an open door and he expects (laughs) you to go through it. And he'll go before you. He'll roll the stones away, the obstacles in the way. We, did he love those women more than he loves you? Do you think he would, just because he did it for, he will do it for you? Of course. That's our God. And I want to point out here, in this text, the word see or saw uh, here, in, and actually the word look, looked, uh, verse 4, when they looked up and then on down a little bit further in verse 5, they saw, and then uh, on down verse 6, it says, see the place. Now those are translated see or looked, but, uh, but there's three different words that are used here that are enlightening to us as we break them down. The word uh, looked is uh, blepo, which is just glanced. They looked up and they saw there that um, the stone had been rolled away. Just a quick glance would communicate through their eyes that the stone was gone. They didn't need to continue to stare at it. And then the second one there, they saw the young man, is to view intently. Now, if you see an angel, I got an idea, you're going to like, whoa, you know, you're going to be staring <laughs> or running, <laughs> one of the two. But the idea is you're looking as, to, as you would look at something to investigate uh, and examine something. And then the last one there in verse 6, see the place where they lay him. Go in there and look. See this? Do you perceive, do you get what happened Do you comprehend the magnitude of what has happened here? The Son of God, the Messiah, has risen from the dead. And so this is just, uh, again, you can bring the parallels into uh, your service for the Lord. You just can't glance at what God wants you to do. You need to view it intently and get to the point where you understand it and perceive it with significance. What might initially appear to be insignificant to you is not to God or he would not be bringing it to your attention. Something that needs to be done. And this is sort of how we parent. If Most of you who are parents, especially of little people, <laughs> you got to pay attention. <laughs> What's going on here? Well, you'll be in some, they'll be in trouble. Verses 5 through 7, they meant, the thing I would point out here is that doing what we can do with what we have, where God has placed us, doing the thing that is right before us often leads to supernatural experiences. 
and they had one. And they were alarmed, they were afraid, and they they ran <laughs> afterwards. And they were trembling and they were afraid and they were they were stressed out. This was not normal. And I think there's some of us who, man, I wish I could see the Lord. I wish I I wish an angel would appear to me. We should probably thank the Lord that he protects us from the supernatural because there are those who have had these experiences because people do, that's what Paul talks about. We've entertained angels and unawares, but those people who are aware and they try to tell someone else, what's the reflection? Like, really? Okay. You know, you, you, you get labeled as being nuts. You know, like, nah. You know, and so most people that have an experience in the supernatural like that, um, they don't want to talk about it because they don't want that kind of reaction. They don't want to be, you know, re- labeled a nutcase, you know. We have our normal and we like normal. And don't mess with anything outside my normal or we're done. You know, that kind of, is this sort of the framework most of us have? Uh, and it's understandable. Uh, so I think it's okay. You know, I think the Lord's wise in sort of prohibiting those kind of supernatural things uh, in our lives. Some people maybe would never recover from it and be traumatized uh, by it. So that's all I can say about that. But they are given instructions. Look, just and this is how you kind of know that it's the Lord because of the way, or, or an angel, is the way they handle themselves. Like, so, look, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. God is always wanting to comfort us in our fears. And I, unfortunately, uh, this is what's going on in our culture. I can't just blow by this. Our culture right now is, is just trapped in fear. And I just... You've got to get a hold of God. You've got to bring these fears to the Lord. God has not given the Christians, the convert, the born-again believer, the spirit of fear, but of love and of power and of a sound mind. We have clear thinking. It doesn't mean we understand everything, but we're not going to get rattled. We're going to trust the Lord. He's in control. He loves me. I'm not going to give up what I don't know, as Chuck used to say, for what I do know. I know who God is, and I know what he can do, and I know he's watching over me, and he's protecting me. He's my foreguard and my rear guard. Come what may, God is with me. And that's the attitude that a Christian must possess. Now, if you, your fears are often fed by lies and by deception. And this is the, we're living in a time of, in an age of deception. You know, I've used this analogy before. I think I shared this with the prayer group a while back. But in, the, in 1854, there was a serious outbreak of cholera in England. And a lot of people died. And they couldn't really figure out what was going on with that outbreak. And so one of the doctors, Dr. Scott, in the area, uh, was doing some analysis trying to figure out uh, what, the, what, what was going on. And the, uh, there was a well, a pump in the middle of the city uh, that was known for its, the best water in the area. And people would come 
from around the town and areas to, to get their water uh, to meet their needs. And um, after doing his research, he narrowed it down that he thought the cholera was actually coming from that well. And so when he approached the authorities, and they doubted him, but he said, well, look, hey, I tell you what, let's just do an experiment. Let's take the handle off the well for a week and see what happens. And to uh, the dismay of the authorities, the reported uh, cases of the cholera uh, went down dramatically. So somehow the well had been contaminated, and that was causing the problem. So once they figured out you know, where it was coming from, it was good to you know, keep the people away. If you are listening to the mainstream media, you're being filled with propaganda and lies. I'm just going to be flat out with that. You're gonna, if you're going to get over your fears, you're going to have to take the handle off the pump. Stop drinking the Kool-Aid and start doing your own research. You are responsible to do your own research about what's going on. And there's plenty of good information apart from the mainstream media that you can acquire. Do six or seven different unconnected researchers. And if they're saying the same thing, there's probably a good reason they are saying the same thing. Get the receipts on what you believe is the main point there. Let's move on. Verses 9 through 15 read as follows. And when Jesus rose up early the first day of the or when he arose early on the first day of the week, he appeared to first to Mary Magdalene, and out of whom he had cast seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. And when they heard that he was alive and he had been seen by her, they did not believe. And after that, he appeared to other, uh, in, in the form of two of them, as they walked into the country, and they went and told it to the rest. But they did not believe them either. The appearance of Christ, uh, first to Mary Magdalene, um, is a special. Her dedication, she is the lady, if you remember, that whom Jesus had cast out, seven demons, but her dedication and commitment to Christ was above many, and um, she was honored with being the first person that Jesus revealed himself afterwards. And so she uh, takes her testimony and runs back to tell them, as she was told to do, and they notice where they were at. Now we understand why the disciples were not doing their duty. They were turned in, inward, they were mourning, and for good reason, they were mourning over the death of Christ, weeping, grieving, just overwhelmed. That had to have been the worst Sabbath day in the history of Israel across that nation when they realized that Jesus, who was their hope, they believed with all their heart that he is the Messiah. And to have him given over by the authorities, the establishment, to the Gentiles, the Romans, and have him crucified was not something they could comprehend. And after it happened, they were devastated. Think of this. For three years, a little bit more maybe, they watched Jesus overcome every obstacle that he ever faced. Why wouldn't he overcome this obstacle? I mean, the guy made water into wine, bread and fish, I only need a couple for thousands to be fed, you know, this whole kind of a thing. Raising the dead, 
healing lepers. And then when he would get cornered by the Pharisees, he just somehow slipped out the back. <laughs> I mean, this guy was like unstoppable. Miracles were commonplace for Jesus. So this was just unthinkable. And yet as they were blinded by their theology, if you will, they had a certain paradigm that, it, that, that Jesus is Messiah and, and this is the way him taking the throne is going to take place. Rome is done. We are done with these people. We're done with these Gentiles, these godless people, you know. Jesus is going to do damage to the deep state, you know. That was their thought. And to see him turn to the grave was just beyond them. So these are only natural emotions that we have. If you experience grieving and mourning, sorrow of heart, it's only natural. I thank God that we have the Holy Spirit. Nobody... Nobody can comfort a soul, the human soul, like the presence of God. And that's what people need the most when they're in this situation. That's really what Mary needed. And as soon as she saw Jesus, oh, like just a melt job. I mean, at the feet, just hanging on you. Look, you, were, you got away from me once you're not getting away again. Mary, hang on, i got to go to heaven here. And I can't drag you along right now, you know. I mean, just... I don't know, the, the bodily expressions are, are, are precious. But when she saw the Lord, she was filled with joy and the grieving in the morning went away. But I think she, she was a bit disappointed that her testimony was not received. And that's understandable. We have a human problem it's called, we need to see before we'll believe. But that is not what faith requires. Faith requires belief, trust, relying on, clinging to before anything comes into visible, uh, becomes visible to us. And so, don't expect when you begin to start out to fulfill your duty that it's, it's all going to be right there and it's going to be confirmed every step of the way. Not always. Just do what you feel and sense that God is calling you to do and leave the results to Him. Do your job. Do your duty. And you'll see the results. Jesus rebuked them. The only reason I don't do my job and pay attention and fail to listen is because I've allowed sin into my life in some form the selfishness, bad attitude, me, my time, whatever. But that's a, that, that hardens the heart. And what we mean is that it makes me insensitive. It's what a hard heart is. It's insensitive. It's, it doesn't understand and it doesn't lead to, to listening to what God is saying. And if I don't listen to God, I'll never do uh, what he said. And what did Jesus say? My sheep hear my voice. That doesn't mean you hear it every moment of the day, every time. But we have these... God speaks to us in a multitude of ways. Through His Word, through the impressions. Like, I know I think I just need to do this. Some of those, those are the Lord. We test the spirits, but just learn this. You learn to hear the voice of God. It's not um, 
without air on occasion. Oh, I thought that was the Lord. Well, I guess it wasn't. Those things happen. But um, even those things, God is able to, to work together for good. So I think it comes down to, and for me, this is what it is. I'm just sharing what I've experienced in my own walk. It comes down to that devotional time of just being before the Lord, reading His Word, sort of meditating on it. And what I mean by that is just sort of thinking it through, looking at the words carefully, considering what they mean. You know, it has a way of, you know, bringing conviction and repentance. And what, what we're talking about here in meditation is a heart-to-heart relationship. For those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about, you might be listening uh, by way of the Internet, and you have no idea what I mean when I say a heart-to-heart relationship. Uh, if you're married and you love your wife, there's certain things you talk to your wife about that you don't talk to anyone else about. It's just between you and her. It's heart-to-heart. With your friends, it's head-to-head, right? You just share thoughts. But when you really love someone and you're one with them, which we are with God, we share those deep hurts, pains, joys, we share it all, heart to heart. It's beyond the level of the mind. I'm going to close with this thought because there are some of you who may doubt this. I think this was... Paul Tripp who said this give him credit my quote my inexhaustible need for grace does not exceed the willingness of God or his capacity to extend his grace to me let me read that again my inexhaustible need for grace does not exceed the willingness of God or his capacity to extend his grace to me. All of us need the grace of God. We cannot go another day, hour, without God's grace. We need his unmerited favor simply because we could never do anything to deserve it. Right? And that's one of the steps of humility. You just realize you're limited capacities and what you really do deserve. But God is so willing. Let me help you. You have not because you ask not, right? It's important that we pray, that we ask God. He's got the capacity to extend whatever we need in any situation. He's so ready to meet us right where we're at in our pain, in our sorrow, in our joys, you know, when we're just totally blessed out of our minds. He's right there, whatever the situation. Now let's just think about all the mercy. Put yourself, say you were one of those disciples, and you like, well, I know Mary's a little, she's kind of extreme, you know, she's a very emotional lady. And we can easily write off people that are like, well, she had a you know dramatic conversion, and you know it didn't really happen that way for me. And she always gets excited. You can write people off, you know. You've never done that, though, have you? <laughs> I have. <laughs> no, 
Think about the grace that he extended to those followers. Grace to appear to her, and then the grace to not let it slide. He wasn't going to let it slide. Hey, fellas, I told you. I don't know if he said it like this, but I told you I was going to be turned over to the authorities. They would scourge me, beat me, spit on me, and crucify me. But I would raise again. And you guys totally just blew it off. Shame on you. But he didn't beat them up. Or he, he just reproved them. He rebuked them for their hardness of heart. Now, I hope to God that you or myself, that we never hear those words from the Spirit of God. Your heart is hard. You need to repent. And if your heart is hard, hardened by the exposure to the world and not dealing with it, then ask God to soften your heart. Make you sensitive, once again, to things of God. You'll be the better for it. Because we have a sense of duty. We've been called to something that nobody else can do but you. You can't do what I can do. I can't do what you can do. Everybody has their own job and their own mission. And if you don't do it, guess what? It's not going to be done. God will have to find somebody else. I don't know some of you are thinking, well, I'm not doing your job. I'm doing my job. So get up and get after it. <laughs> <laughs> No, you wouldn't say that to only to those you really close to you, right? <laughs> like your children that need to clean their room. <laughs> so whatever it is that God has called you to do this week, I want to encourage you to do it. Just get after it. Trust God. He'll give you the ability. He'll give you the wherewithal. He'll meet you right where you are. He will extend all the grace to you that you need. Shall we pray? Let's, let's stand as we close. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the grace that you extended to these believers and seeing their lives and the way you dealt with them surely gives each one of us in this room and those listening otherwise that you have the same grace for us. Thank you, Lord. And so I pray you'd fill us with joy in believing today as we celebrate this incredible feat of you raising from the dead. Wow, Lord. Such power demonstrated. We love you. We praise you. We honor you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.